Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. That can be located on page 203 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is made great to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This is God's word. pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides even to the joints and marrow of the soul and spirit, the thoughts and intentions of men and women. And so, Lord, we stand under the examination, under the scrutiny of your word, and we pray that you would use use it to shape us, to form us, to correct us, to encourage us, Lord, and that we would have ears that are divinely prepared by you to hear. I pray for myself as I speak your word and speak of your majesty, of your glory, your supremacy, and your sovereignty. Lord, I pray that you would be with me to speak clearly and not go beyond what is written and not stop short of what is written. And so I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, before we get started, I just want to make just a couple of make you aware of a couple of things. We, uh, um, I am noticing that we have several visitors this morning, and I got to meet a couple of you. But I'd love to meet you guys. If you, uh, I'll be out in the foyer afterwards. And I'd love to say hi. But one person in particular I want to say hi to is not a visitor, and that's Kara Smith. Kara um, is one of our college students, and she goes home every summer, and um, we don't like that, and so we're glad that she's here. She's starting her senior year, so congratulations on that, and uh, we're really glad to have her back. Second thing I want to tell you is today is one of the days where we have our after-church discussion group. We're going to be doing that at Barbara Hinojosa Park. The address should be in your bulletin. If you didn't get one, there's still some out there, and I believe that address is 7322nd. Is it street or place? It might be in, in your thing, but anyway, it's right there in your bulletin, and it's a, a really kind of secluded little park off of Iola, and we would love to have you join us. We get started around 12.15. We'll be done here around 11.30. We want to give you some time to go grab some food and, and uh, join us for that. Those are always really great, and so we want you to be uh, of that. The last thing I need to share with you is more of a confession than, and I don't mean like the kind we adhere to. I mean a confession of my faults and weaknesses. Um, our, uh, we have lost our resident uh, bread maker for communion, and so I went and bought bread for communion today, and 
I got bread that was made in a facility that processes peanuts, and I know some of you have peanut allergies, so I apologize. Thank you to Lana Nehi, who brought us some peanut-free bread. So if you are prone to peanut allergies, in the small bowls when we come to take communion, that will be there for you, so you won't have to worry about any risk uh, for yourself or for your children. Just be aware of that before you come up. Um, Okay, let's get into the much more important thing here, which is the Word of God. For those of you that are new, our visitors, you you might not know, but we've been in a series. We're starting our sixth week in the series on the attributes of God. We, our general mode of preaching here is to take a book or a passage and just go line by line through that. But we thought it would be really helpful for all of the rest of the Bible preaching, Bible study that we do to, to give you a better idea of the God of whom the scriptures speak. And so we decided to do this series on the attributes of God. And when we decided to do that, when we planned to do this series, um, I shared with the elders that there would be three main obstacles that that we would have to overcome as we preach through this in order to, to preach it effectively. First, it should be the most obvious, and that is the natural limitations that are imposed upon mortal minds to communicate the glory that is manifest in God's attributes. God, uh, David said of such things, such knowledge is, is wonderful, it's too high for me, I cannot grasp it. And so uh, when you see someone talking about the attributes, every great, every sound theological writer throughout all of history who's ever approached this topic has had to do so with a profound awareness of how ill-equipped that they were to expound upon the infinite mystery that is God's being. Now, as I've said repeatedly, I've said it probably in every message, if we didn't have the divine revelation of Scripture, we would know absolutely nothing about the being of God. It is a mercy of God that He's given us the Scripture so that we could know what He is like. We might perhaps surmise his existence from observing creation, but it wouldn't go far enough. We wouldn't know anything about his essential nature, what he thinks, what he cares about, what he hates. And due to this humbling reality, it's crucial, listen to me carefully, it's crucial that when we study the attributes of God, we weld ourselves only to what God has revealed in Scripture. We have to reject vain imaginations and any speculative preferences that we might have as to what God's nature is like. You hear people um, say all the time, well, my God wouldn't do this, and the God I know does this, and they, 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 they put that kind of category. And most of the time when people say that, they are not describing the God of the Bible at all. Have you noticed that? Have you seen that? And so we can't do that. We have to weld ourselves to the scripture if we're going to be talking about what is what God is like, what his nature is like. I have to commit to that standard as the one doing the majority of the preaching. I have to commit to that standard. But here's your part. You have to insist that I commit to that standard of scripture when I'm presenting these truths to you. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the problem of proper ordering of the attributes. This is because, as we've said in our first message, that God is not made of components. He's not made of greater and lesser parts. But every, but He is 
everything he is perfectly at all times without change, either by improvement or depletion. Biblically, this means that he can never at any time be anything other than what he is. Not only does he not change, but he's never less of one of his attributes than he is of another. Now, how many of you in your humanity have sometimes been more anger than you were love or more, um, you know, uh, friendly than you were uh, uh, angry or whatever? It's, it, we, we have all kinds of degrees of attributes in our humanity. But God doesn't change. He's never less of one of his attributes than he is of another. He isn't some days mostly love with just a little touch of justice. He's not perhaps sometimes wisdom, but with just a small degree of power. On the contrary, God possesses all of his attributes in fullness and perfection, not only now, but throughout all eternity. Eternity without beginning, eternity without end. God will always be exactly what he is. Now, while some attributes are closely related. Take, for example, the wisdom and the omniscience of God. You can't place the attributes really in a logical order. I've read several books by great writers for this series, and what I've known is you can't, they are not cookie cutters. One will list, say, the sovereignty of God, which we're talking about this morning, at the very beginning of the book, and and another author puts it at the very end of the book. You can't logically order those things. You can't put them in a logical, rational order without doing some level of injury to the simplicity of God. Therefore, what we're doing is we're ordering these messages based on relationships between attributes whenever we can do that. And not we're not uh, relating them by any status of importance or inherent glory of one attribute over another because that status simply does not exist. Now, that's two challenges. The third challenge is this. It's, it's posed the, by peering into the nature of the being of God, and it's connected to the challenge of trying to construct a cohesive order, a coherent order, and it's a challenge that I refer to as overlap. Here's what I mean by that. We talked about early on in the series that God is not, that, that God is rather simple. That does not mean he's simplistic. He, he's not, he's, he's not, you know, dull of mind or power. But when we say he's simple, it means that he's everything he is. Like I said, and he, and everything he is, he is perfectly. And that doesn't change and he's not compo- uh, c- comprised of components. And therefore, it's nearly impossible, think about this, it's nearly impossible for us to discuss any one of his attributes without just incidentally referring to other of his attributes. You cannot satisfactorily isolate one of his attributes from any of the others. As we said last week, we talked about his holiness last week, and we said that that his holiness is the context in which Every other attribute of God is understood. And similarly, you can't talk about his love without making some reference to his justice, his grace, his righteousness, his mercy. Um, And so as we proceed in this series, you will hear me frequently refer to attributes that we've already examined. Or perhaps I might allude to others that we have not yet fully described. And I want to let you know, this is not a defect in the series. Instead, what I hope it does is emphasize 
the completeness of God in all of his attributes, that he is utterly indivisible. See, dividing God is what the culture does uh, now. When they are caught in sin that God clearly judges in the word, they like to say, well, like I said earlier, well, my God is love. Well, your God is love, but he's also perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Who, who is, uh, uh, the, the Habakkuk said that he's, uh, or I think Haggai rather said, that he's of too, uh, uh, too much purity to even look on iniquity. He's utterly indivisible. You can't take his love and enjoy its benefits without taking everything else that God is. And this, this third uh, problem, challenge, obstacle of overlap is one we'll be dealing with this morning. So this is the case. As in preparation for what I want to share with you this week and next week, um, I'm going to begin by refreshing us on God's supremacy. Now, without exception, no exception whatsoever, everything that we've discussed so far over the last five weeks has been rooted either overtly or covertly in the fact that God is the only incomparable, self-existent, and unspeakably holy God. We talked about that his holiness means that he's separate, he's essentially pure, and that he's transcendent. He is independent, triune, and a fully incomprehensible being. And since there's nothing and no one that is also infinite and eternal, because no one shares his lofty claim of being the first cause of all that is, we're forced by two things, revelation and logic and simple reason, to acknowledge that he is the sole being who is worthy of the designation supreme. He's the only one who has supremacy. 1 Timothy 1.17 in the Bible uh, Paul writes this beautiful benediction as he's writing instructions to Timothy. And he does it early in the book, in, in chapter 1. And he says this, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is he saying? He's saying God is supreme. He has supremacy. Earlier we read where David, as the precious materials were being gathered from the temple for the, from the people rather, for the construction of the temple under Solomon, declared that God was blessed forever and ever. And then he goes on to say in verse 11 of our text today, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God is, what is he saying here? He's saying that, that like God is supreme. This is David's prayerful recognition of the supremacy of God above and beyond and over all everything. So what Paul and David are asserting is also what every other biblical author asserts. That God is overall, He's Lord of all, He is supreme overall. Let me give you a few examples. From the Old Testament first, Deuteronomy says that He is the God that kills and makes alive, that wounds and heals, and that there's none that can deliver out of His hand. Proverbs says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord 
that will stand. Isaiah says that he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Jeremiah says that he is the God of all flesh. What are they saying? God is supreme. In the New Testament, that that pattern does not ebb away. Jesus said in John, before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? He's saying, I am eternal. Colossians says that all things were made through him and for him and that he is preeminent. Philippians says he's been given a name that is above every other name. In Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The New Testament is testifying to the supremacy of God. So clearly to say that the the supremacy of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a truth revealed throughout Scripture, that fact is indisputable. Every other attribute or every attribute of God, which the Bible proclaims, is built on the foundation of this reality that God is supreme. And were he not supreme, there would be, think about this horrifying thought. If if we could, you know, delude ourselves, make an argument that God was not supreme, what would we be arguing for? We would be arguing for a, a, a delusion that there would be something or someone that is higher than God. And if that were so, if there was a co-God out there somewhere, the God we know wouldn't just be a lesser God, for a subordinate God cannot exist and still be God in any sense of the word. If God were not supreme over everything else, guess what? He would be no God at all. Last week, when we were talking about holiness, we said... It applies to every attribute of God, no matter how opposite those attributes may appear. For example, the love of God is a holy love. The wrath of God is a holy wrath. The condescension of God is a holy condescension. His exaltation is a holy exaltation. God can't be properly understood apart from holiness. Similarly, every attribute of God magnifies his supremacy. Supremacy like holiness permeates the study of all God is. Holiness is the definition and the common ground or the common bond of all God's many attributes, but supremacy is the result of them. In other words, we understand God's attributes better when we understand them as holy attributes, but when we see them as holy, we cannot help but draw a line from His holiness to His supremacy. Everybody with me? Again, so let's go through the same list. His his love is the supreme love. It's the source and the standard of all true love, wherever it exists. His wrath is the supreme wrath. It's doled out in perfect justice against all unrighteousness. There is never a mistrial in the judgment courts of God. His condescension is a supreme condescension. Why? Because it's unimaginable due to His supremacy that God would become man live among us, die for us. And nothing at all rivals his worthiness of exaltation. 
And so his exaltation must be a supreme exaltation. God's supremacy isn't only arrived at, as I said earlier, by divine revelation. Primarily it is, but also by logical conclusion. Let me prove that to you from Scripture. Romans 1.20. Many of you are familiar with it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what, what is Paul saying here to the Romans? He is saying that only a fool, the Bible says in the book of Psalms, the fool says in his heart what? Say that louder. There is no God. So therefore, only a fool could examine the intricacies of the created order and imagine that they were the product of random chance or a very fortuitous sequence of beneficial mutations. There must be an intelligent designer. And if there were not, the product of this earth would not be beauty, it would be monstrosities. It would not be order, it would be chaos. This truth applies to every aspect of the natural world. Astronomy, botany, biology, chemistry, geology, zoology, physics, etc., etc., etc. What an astounding thing it would be if all systems were designed by mere chance and yet we saw all systems working with precision in a curiously harmonious balance. If you believe that, you have way more faith than I do. But what did Job say? Job said this. He said, but ask the beasts and they will tell you. The birds of the heaven and they, or they will teach you. The birds of the heaven and they will tell you. The bushes of the earth and they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. But we not only infer an intelligent designer from creation, we're forced by what we observe not only to admit that all this was designed, but that such a designer could not exist without being supreme over all. And that all of his masterpieces are completely subject to him. And therefore, by absolute necessity, whoever did this must be God Almighty. Now, so what do we mean when we call God supreme? What are, what, how do we examine that more closely? What do we mean when we call him Almighty? We're recognizing... In that statement, another attribute, one that is closely related, and yet it's separate in distinction from his supremacy. And that is the attribute of his sovereignty. These are related in that God cannot be sovereign in authority if he's not unconditionally supreme over all. If God answered to someone, then that person to whom he answered would be what? He would be the sovereign, right? And God would not be. What then is the distinction between supremacy and sovereignty? I found this quote from 
Arthur W. Pink to be very, very helpful. He says, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, Always as, his please, always as he pleases, none can thwart him, none can hinder him. Uh, you know, Arthur W. Pink was a great theologian, but, but is God's sovereignty big enough to make an impression on a pagan? Well, let's look what the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar said about God after he revealed mysteries that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. He says in Daniel 4.34, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? These are not the lips of a prophet of Israel. These are not the the lips of a New Testament apostle. These are the lips of a pagan Babylonian king who is forced to recognize both God's sovereignty and his supremacy. Now what is this but a rewording of the praise offered by David in our text when he said, yours is the kingdom. What kingdom is he talking about? Every kingdom. He says, oh Lord, you are exalted as head above all. What's he saying? You are supreme. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand, pay attention, it is to make great and to give strength to all. What is David saying about the sovereignty of God? He's saying it's God's prerogative alone to exalt some and to bring others down by nothing but the exercise of his will and purpose. And may I add the adjective, his good will and his good purpose. See, here's why this is important to you. You may think this is, you know, theological, you know, some kind of theological morass that you don't really have time for, doesn't really apply to your life. Yes, it does. Why? Because... Most of you, at some point in this week, myself included, I'm definitely included, worried about something. And you worried about something because in a moment of deception, you thought that you were subject to the whims of politicians. You thought that you were subject to some disease roaming the land. You thought that you were subject to financial distresses or persecutions, or the lies that are driving the world right now. But the truth is that every single one of these temporal storms is subject to the will and the allowance of the great I Am. And what a comfort to the believer to know, to understand who it is that's in charge. Let's return to thinking about the supremacy of God. Let me say something very shocking to you. The supremacy of God would be very little comfort to us if 
he did not daily make known his supremacy by the exercise of his sovereignty. If we knew that somewhere out there, there was a God who was totally supreme, but didn't give two thoughts about us. He was just up there somewhere being praised by angels. That would bring us no comfort, would it? But he is a God who exercises his will over the created realm by his sovereignty. We see this in scripture when he being woken from a nap stands and commands the storm to be silent. When he sees his prophet thrown into a den of lions, hungry lions, and he commands them to shut their mouths. When his prophet delivers the word that there won't be any any uh, rain in the land where uh, until he says so and god says go sit by a brook to receive your water and i'm sending birds to bring you food is that not the sovereignty of god over all his creation and i can hear there's you know one of my favorite things about puritan literature is they will passionately make a case for whatever they're writing about. And then they'll put these big letters in bold type as they anticipate what their readers are thinking. And the word will say, just like you hear in court, objection. And then the the Puritan will proceed to answer the objection. So some of you are crying objection right now. I am declaring the Lord's sovereignty over everything In the created realm. And the created realm isn't just the physical realm. He created the heavens too. And everything that occupies the heavens. So we've got to ask. What of as Martin Luther called him. Our ancient foe. The devil. Does he not. Present a formidable challenge. To the sovereignty of God. And the exercise of his will. Perhaps. We, re- we, we imagine him as that one little created rascal who acts independently of God's sovereignty and is constantly found resisting it. But again, where are we drawing the line to what we're going to weld ourselves to for this series and every other one? Is that how the scripture portrays Satan, Lucifer, the devil? Not at all. Not at all. If you're familiar with the book of Job, the first two chapters of Job, twice the devil has to to submit to the permissive will of God before he can lift one tiny finger against Job to do him harm. So who's in charge there? Who is the sovereign in that story? Is the devil exercising some counter-sovereignty? Not at all. He's standing there with his hat in hand, getting permission from Almighty God. There's a great quote, I was sharing this with the guys the other night, attributed to Martin Luther. I can't find where he actually said it, but still a great quote. Martin Luther is purported to say, to, to have said, the devil is God's devil. He does not act independently. And so he has to get the permissive will of God uh, uh, expressed by God before he can do anything. Job 2.6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now, that didn't give you guys, many of you, 
any sense of relief or comfort, you're going like, well, why would God allow that? And instead of listing out theological reasons for the why of God as though I can explore the mind, the intellect of God, I will say to you, as Paul says to the Romans in chapter 9, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? We affirm, because the scripture tells us, we affirm that God is sovereign, not only over the devil and the creation, but guess what? He's sovereign over you as well. He exercises absolute sovereignty over you. Some of you might have come into this room with a rebellion in your heart, and you're saying, I, I will never bend the knee to such a God. I, he's, no one's telling me what to do. Just wait. Just wait. God exercises his own will for his own purposes for the ultimate end of glorifying himself above everything else. If you read through the book of Job, not just the first two chapters, you'll see a clear representation of his supremacy. You'll see his sovereignty and all of it will lead to the glory of God. See, our problem with God's sovereignty comes from an ignorance of his character, a deep pollutant of ignorance of his character. Abraham rhetorically asked, will not the judge of all the earth do what is righteous? And even in the same book of Romans, we're, we're, pro, we're promised in the previous chapter, all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. See, remember what we said right at the beginning when we were explaining the obstacles of this, of this type of a series of messages. Every exercise of God's sovereignty cannot be separated from any of his other attributes. And this means that the goodness of God is foundational and inseparable from anything he does or anything that he allows to take place in our lives. Now, raise your hand if unpleasant things happen in your life. Bill, have you ever had any unpleasant things happen in your life? In some things, he allows unpleasant things so that we will cling to him more and come to the necessary realization that he is the only thing in our lives worth having. At other times, his goal is to cause us from the apathy that we exist in and the idolatry we're toying with to enjoy Him. Some hard times are a consequence of our very own unrepentant sin. Has anybody else besides me ever experienced that? Other hard times come to us so that we will experience and appreciate His readily available grace, His mercy to endure. You guys remember what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, so to me, he was talking about these great visions that he had had, and he said, so to me, to, so to keep me, rather, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. You don't understand that? Most people don't. He's going to tell you what it means. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. In verse 8, he does exactly what we would do. Three times, 
I pleaded the Lord with the Lord about this, that it would leave me, that it should leave me. Verse 9, he gets God's answer. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. When we begin to realize that this is true and see the reality of it, we discover what Spurgeon said. He said this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty, three things here, has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. And by the sharpest of contrasts, there is absolutely no doctrine of the Bible that the children of the world hate worse. There is no doctrine that they resist and gnash their teeth against, as Pink says, more than the doctrine of God's unbreakable, uncompromising sovereignty over them. While they delude themselves with a belief in their own independence and imagine that they have an uncorrupted free will, they deny the reality of God's sovereign rule. And again, Pink states this. He, the Word of God teaches it as, as Pink states it, that God is unrivaled in His majesty, unlimited in His power, unaffected by anything outside of Himself. Even though... That is true. They live and eventually die under the foolish assumption that they are their own masters and not ultimately servants of the Most High God. But the day will come more quickly than they have ever imagined that they will stand naked before the bar of the great sovereign judge of the universe and give a full accounting of all of their rebellion all of their rejection of his truth and his commands. And in that day, what defense, what excuse will they have in that terrible, terrible moment? May our hearts resound with the words of Psalm 115, verse 1 through 3. Not to us, O Lord, Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. This is the reminder that fuels, that encourages, that admonishes, that comforts, that corrects the people who know their God. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much, God, for this. Again, I keep using this word, but this incomprehensible truth that you are above everything, God, and you daily demonstrate that with the work of your sovereignty. And so, Lord, I just ask that 
you would help us not only to see it, Lord, but to acknowledge it and to surrender our lives to a joy in your sovereignty, Lord, to to say to ourselves, Lord, that why are you so cast down on my soul? Put your trust in God. Because God, you are never, ever out of control. And every exercise of your sovereignty, when it, even when it brings the appearance of darkness to our lives, is rooted inseparably in your goodness. And so, God, we pray that if we're going through hard times now, if some are right around the corner, that you would help us, Lord, to, to trust in your sovereign rule and to bend our knee and submit to it. And we ask all this in the name of our triumphant Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come and help us this morning to serve communion. And um, we uh, always like to uh, encourage you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been uh, cleansed by his, his sacrifice on the cross, then we want you, and have received that by faith and through repentance, we want you to uh, uh, come and freely take with joy in your hearts. If you're here and you have not quite settled where you are with Jesus, we want to encourage you in the strongest terms to remain where you are and not to come forward. Um, every week we remind people that the Bible says to, to those who are, st- are in that place of not having made a real commitment to Jesus and, or not sure if they have, but that the Bible says to eat and drink unworthily at this table um, is to eat and drink condemnation on yourself. And we want much better things for you than that. And so if you would um, just refrain, uh, we want you to know we're praying for you. We believe that God is doing a work in you, and we want to be a part of that by praying for it. And if you would like to talk to Pastor David or Gabriel or myself about um, uh, what what uh, it means to truly trust in Christ, then we would love to give you the opportunity. But for the rest of you, I want to invite you now to come and receive the elements, and um, we will uh, we'll take them together in a moment. You can take them back to your seat. The Apostle Paul writes for us in the book of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now, in in just a moment, let's just give thanks to the Lord for just his incredible gift. Lord, you express your sovereignty over us and over our sins so much on the cross, Lord. And we see the beauty of your rule over everything. When we see you looking at us as sinners, dead in our sins and trespasses, and because of your great love for us, you sovereignly declare a substitute for us, and that we are cleansed through the blood of Christ. And you make us not just 
clean, you make us sons and daughters of the living God. You said, those who were not my people have become my people. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, that inexpressible gift that is evidence of the supremacy and the sovereignty of which we've spoken this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands on a receiving position, I want to read you this benediction from Second Chronicles 20, verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.